The planet is heating up. The oceans are becoming filled with plastic. Change starts now. Change starts now. We're on a countdown to zero waste. Five, four, three, two, one. This is the Zero Waste Countdown Podcast. Here's your host, Laura Nash. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Zero Waste Countdown podcast and radio show. Today, we're speaking with Melanie Bergman about her study. She found plastic in snow in both the Arctic and the Alps. Melanie, I don't want to do a disservice to the German language, so can you say your university for us? Yeah, it's the Alfred Wegener Institute for Polar and Marine Research. Awesome. And then you're part of the Biosciences and Deep Sea Ecology and Technology Department, is that right? Yeah, I'm from the Deep Sea Ecology Group. Awesome. Okay, and so Melanie, you led a research team looking for microplastics in snow in both the Arctic and the Alps. So tell us about why you chose those two locations. Yeah, the background of the story really was that we found these really high microplastic concentrations in samples of sea ice and of deep sea sediments in the Arctic. So we were asking ourselves, where does it all come from? And one possibility is, of course, the atmosphere, since the colleagues from France and also China have shown that microplastic is in the air. So it could well be that it's transported with the wind, for example. And because snow is a known scavenger of particles entrapped in the air, we basically chose to sample snow because that's more easy um, compared with putting out instruments uh, on ice flows for a year uh, mm-hmm. in the Arctic. Mm-hmm. And there was, a, there was a comparison between the Arctic and the Alps, right? So was there more plastic in the Arctic or was there more plastic in the Alps? Uh, we did not only sample in the Arctic and in the Alps, but also in the city of Bremen on the Isle of Helgoland, which are northern Germany. So um, this is also interesting. And basically, we compared the amount of microplastics from European samples and uh, the Arctic samples. And it was a lot higher, of course, in the European samples. But even in the Arctic, uh, snow samples, we found um, up to 14,000 particles per liter melted snow. Oh, my goodness. Although, um, on average, it was more about uh, 2,000 particles per liter snow. So. And yeah, how, how many... quite a significant amount uh, considering the remoteness of the place. Yeah, yeah, it's quite sad, um, but very important findings. And how how much was the concentration in the European areas that were closer to cities? Um, in the city of Bremen, it was um, that was the most urban site. It was uh, around about two thousand particles per liter melted snow. So yeah. Also quite a lot, but not anywhere near as high as those from the Bavarian Alps. And in that one sample, which was the highest of the whole study, we found uh, more than 150,000 particles per liter melted snow. So, yeah, oh that goodness. really was a huge amount. And really, when you see, think about the Alps, because they're so high, I guess there's no other way of getting that plastic into the snow other than, I guess, the atmosphere, right? Well, that particular sample was taken next to a country road. So, I mean, it's not in the middle of a city. 
but still there may have been um, some traffic prior to our sampling, which could have swirled up any um, particles on the road, possibly. So, yeah, that could could have played a role. Um, it's not like a pristine part of, of the Alps. That was more likely in, in the Swiss, Swiss Alps, uh, where we also took samples, and indeed, those were amongst the lowest concentrations that we found. I read in the study, too, that you found concentrations of, of rubber uh, from car, mm-hmm. car tires. And was that found in the Arctic as well? Uh, yes, we also found rubber particles in the Arctic, but I would not um, say, well, we cannot really pinpoint it to car tires because um, rubber is used in many different um, applications. And, of course, yeah. it is likely that they may have come from car tires, but I would um, still not pinpoint it really directly to, to that cause because um, at the moment we cannot really tell it from our analysis. Mm-hmm. And I've heard that it's difficult to tell where the types of di- like different types of plastic comes from because it's broken down so small that you can't see that it's a water bottle or you can't see that it's a shirt anymore. Were you able to kind of differentiate other than the rubber, like other types of plastics? Like what kind of plastics did you find in the samples? Um, We also found a lot of um, particles that belong to a group which comprises varnish, polyurethane and acrylate. And um, these may come from paintings or coatings of uh, surfaces, maybe from cars or house facades or um, chips, uh, offshore platforms. Um, We can, again, not really pinpoint it to a direct source, but those are possibilities. We also found polyamide samples um, in our samples, polyethylene, which comes could come from um, packaging material. So, yeah. But there was a big variety of um, different polymer types that we found. So tell us a little bit about the scientific process of finding, um, you, well, your findings, I guess. So how did you guys analyze the samples to find the microplastics? What was the process? Well, the first thing was to um, go out and take the samples. In the Arctic, we used a helicopter or a dinghy to approach an ice floe, and then we basically used a sophisticated spoon, (laughs) scrape (laughs) off the surface snow and put it into our jars. And then in the laboratory in Helgoland, um, we basically melted the snow and filtered the particles in it, and then it was um, subject to what we call Fourier transform infrared spectroscopy. And basically, um, here you get a spectrum for each particle on the filter, and this is matched up with a reference library of known um, particles, and um, then you get a match for different polymer types. Oh, wow. And can say so and so many particles of polyethylene, so and so many polyamides, and so on. So, yeah, then you get a composition of um, the particles in your sample. Very cool. So I'm not a scientist, but I love science. So I'm just trying to get a visual. Are you kind of like shining a red light on different things, and then the way the light interacts with the particles, then you would reference like the the amount of light that goes through or something? Is that how it works? I think that's how you could... Um, yeah, that's how you could explain it more easily. (laughs) 
I try to explain things like I'm five sometimes <laughs> that I that I can try to understand what you guys are doing out there. Um, so <laughs> there there was one spot that you tested that didn't have any plastic, or were there many many sites that you tested that didn't have any plastic? No, there was just the one site, and oh. um, basically at that site we also found microplastics, but uh, we also took blank samples and subtracted um, the amount of particles that we found in, in a blank sample with the ones that we found in a sample. And because of that, there were zero in the end in that sample. So, yeah. The reason why we take these blank samples is, of course, that you have to take account of contamination of samples. I mean, we are surrounded by plastic uh, everywhere. Mm-hmm. When we do our analysis, we try to, where well, we were cotton lab coats, we have a clean bench and, uh, yeah, air filtration system. So we try and avoid it as much as possible, but uh, it cannot be excluded totally. So to account for this, we take these blank samples and, yeah. What do you mean by a blank, a blank sample? Basically, you put a filter or water um, and, and process it in, in the same way as you process your sample. And if you found any particles in it, then you subtract the amount of particles from your sample. Oh, I see. So in this way, you can yeah subtract uh, possible air contamination. And the spot that you didn't find any or very much contamination, I guess, it was in the Arctic, I would assume? Was that the, yeah. the lowest mm-hmm. concentrations? Yeah. But it, it's still yeah. crazy that it's up there. It's uh, It's kind of sad to think about, actually. Yeah, and I mean, that was just one of... Uh, quite a few samples. <laughs> yeah. Why are why are there high concentrations of microplastics in the Arctic surface waters when there's so little human population up there? Is it because the all the currents are of both oceans are pushing up into the Arctic? Um, are you talking about water samples or snow samples now? Water samples. Because on, on water samples, we have not published yet. Um, I mean, we've published on, on sea ice, and, and the sea ice comes from the water samples. So I guess you could conclude that um, we have high quantities in, in the seawater. The microplastics in the seawater likely come from the ice when it's melting in the Arctic, but also get transported um, to the north um, with the thermal haline circulation, so basically the Gulf Stream, mm-hmm. which um, yeah delivers particles and uh, water into to the north. Because I think I read about you that you have done a study as well on microplastics. Was it in the Arctic seafloor or was it in in the water? We okay. have um, looked into sediments of the seafloor, mm-hmm. and there we found uh, huge amounts. We found concentrations of um, around about uh, 6,000 particles per kilogram sediment, and that's a lot. Wow. And that could come from local inputs uh, because, of course, there's more and more traffic in the Arctic. Um, it could come from um, Europe and be transported to the north with the thermal haline um, circulation. It could um, also come from Central Arctic, delivered to the study area, which is the farm strait, uh, with the ice, because that drifts to the south with the transpolar drift from the Central Arctic. Yeah, so there's various um, possibilities. But, of course, one um, important 
mode of transport could also be the atmosphere since we found these uh, high concentrations uh, in snow. So the atmosphere is kind of raining down plastic in snow, probably, and then it's getting in the ice. And then when the ice melts, then it it could be releasing into the Arctic water and getting into the, the seabed sediments. Yeah, or it's directly snowfalls onto water and uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, it's then transferred to the yeah. water and finally to the ocean floor. I wonder what samples are like near cities. If they're if the seabed concentrations are so high in the Arctic, I would assume that they would be just crazy high around big cities. Um, did you have any? Did you compare any data of of city seabed contamination? The problem with this analysis is that every lab does it in a different way. Oh yeah. So it's very hard to make comparisons. Yeah. But we also analyzed samples in the same way taken in Norway near near city and also near to where they used to dispose of um, fuel sludge and there they found uh, much higher concentrations. And um, But on the other hand, we compared, if you compare our samples from the seafloor with those from the North Sea, for instance, which is of course much closer to um, potential sources, there were around about 1,000 particles per kilogram sediment, so um, they seem quite a bit lower uh, on, on, on average. And that was exactly the same methodology used. Wow. So it almost seems like the Arctic is, like, I don't want to say a dumping ground, but, like, it seems to be accumulating microplastics from around the world, possibly. Yeah, it looks a little bit like that, and um, wow. that could have to do with the um, yeah water circulation patterns uh, bringing it to this area from different directions, but uh, also in terms of, of the winds, which um, also bring particles from all these different directions, from North America, Western Europe, the North Pacific, East Asia, um, the East European and um, Siberia, basically, yeah, it kind of, it may concentrate particles in this area. Mm -hmm. Jay Branda said he also found uh, Teflon on the seafloor, which I thought was really weird. And he said he had no idea where it came from. He's a scientist from University of Savannah in Georgia. And uh, mm -hmm. that was one of the most prevalent things they found, I guess, which is weird. Yeah, I've seen it in, in, in several studies, and we also found it in um, our studies. The, the, the bigger particles from the seafloor samples were, all, were, were that material as well, yeah. The only thing I know that Teflon is used for is nonstick pans, and I, I mean, it, maybe it has other uses, I don't know, but I wonder if, like, it's from people washing their pans or something. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. Or dump. Maybe it was dumped a long time ago. From companies, yeah, I, but maybe mm -hmm. maybe it is from washing because um, the huge treatment, of course, only retains a certain amount of the microplastics in in our water, and yeah, so mm -hmm. yeah, if, if you often these um, um, pots that that we use are actually not um, intact anymore. It's a lot of scratches and stuff, and um, maybe once the the surface is damaged, then um, you lose more and more of these um, particles. That's quite interesting. I never thought about that. 
Yeah, you see people's pans all scratched because they use forks. I know we used, my yeah. mom used to freak out if we came anywhere near a nonstick pan with a fork because it would get yeah. all scratched. Um, Not but so clever. Uh, you, you found some natural fibers too in the snow samples, which I found kind of interesting because I think that that kind of shows that like, I think fur was one of the things you found. So that's obviously Mm -hmm. something that can travel in in the atmosphere. And we know that. What are some of the other things that you found? Um, We also found plant fibers. Uh, Uh, We found also minerals uh, like like coal. Um, Coal? Yeah. Yeah. So there's a whole range of different um, particles. Yeah. So... Let's say I have a, a plastic bottle in London or like, you know, some big city in Europe and I just like put it on the ground <laughs> and I don't know how fast things would get into the air from that. But do you have any idea of how fast microplastics could travel from any cities that we know in Europe to the Arctic? Like, is it a few days of wind travel? And do we know this from some of the natural fibers or is it too hard to tell? Well, there's been one study which basically found that pollen from uh, pine trees and willow trees, I think, traveled to the Arctic from Central Europe within five days. So uh, that's really fast. Uh, Also, there has been a study uh, where they detected dust from the Sahara, rather uh, big particles, actually, yeah, which is uh, to the northeast Atlantic, which is a distance of 3,500 kilometers. Although um, they didn't state how fast they, these particles had traveled, so how mm. long they were on the way. But we definitely know that things are moving around the world in the mm. air. And yeah. I guess now we know that plastic is has, has joined it, so it's in the air, which which really disturbs me because I don't know if I'm breathing it in. I would assume I probably would be breathing it in and then I don't know what's going to happen to my body when I'm getting like am I getting plastic stuck in my aviola I don't know (laughs) it's kind of weird to think about Um, yeah this is really um, strange um, because I mean I give a lot of interviews and at the end of it it's often the question well what does it do to our health if 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 I eat a muscle which contains microplastic or fish which has microplastic and yeah, it's also in the air. <laughs> so we don't really know what it's doing to us. The only thing we do know is that it has been found in human stools. So, um, but this doesn't really tell us how it affects us. It just says basically that we've ingested it and ingested it. So we don't know what it does to us if we inhale it. Because I mean, there's been one study in 1998, um, where they found uh, microplastic in human lung tissue. But this is the only study, really. And, I mean, the plastic production has increased a lot since then and not a very big study. So um, it's it's a little strange because there's a lot of research being undertaken on the effects of microplastics on animals, yet, yeah, very little or none published to date about the effects on humans. Yeah. I think it's something that people kind of don't want to know about because plastic is such a big part of everybody's lives. And sometimes people will tell me, oh, I had a plastic water bottle, Laura, and I thought of you. And I was like, well, why didn't you just not 
take it <laughs> if you you know if you thought of me because we know that it's a problem, but it's so hard for people to stop because it's so convenient, yeah. right? So, yeah, I I think there should definitely be way more studies on this, and I have never thought of it before talking to you that yeah we could have plastic like lodged in our our lungs, which I don't think could be good. So hopefully some people study that, and hopefully your study here leads to more studies and and make sure that we're okay and and see what we can do because I don't know like is there any way of cleaning out particles from the air like with some super micro air filter or something I guess I guess there would be yeah but that would be a major undertaking yeah and, and, and it would be mean, so big um, <laughs> Yeah, and, and, and microplastics are just uh, one part of a huge um, air pollution problem that we have anyway. I mean, all those uh, fine particles, and uh, maybe microplastic is part of those ultra-fine uh, particles um, that is just not being monitored right now. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Well, you know a little bit about toxins in microplastic, right? Because you have a book, it's called Marine Anthropogenic Litter. And mm -hmm. I, I think there's a chapter on toxins in there, right? We've actually never really talked too much about toxins on this show. Uh, can you can you tell us about it? Like, is there a danger? Are there toxins being attached to plastic? Uh, do they act like a sponge and collect more? I'm not really an expert um, on this. Um, Chelsea Roachman um, has done a lot of work on, on that. But I mean, what we do know is that plastic contains a lot of additives because uh, any product, any polymer will be added these chemicals to yeah, give it a certain color, to, to reduce its flam flammability or to make it soft. Um, this is the one part. Then, of course, there's the other part. If plastic is in the environment, in the water, For instance, uh, then it can act like a magnet um, because of its hydrophobic properties. Basically, that any pollutants in the um, water will adhere to this microplastic particle. And um, this has been shown for some heavy metals and um, different um, persistent organic pollutants, so a whole uh, array of pollutants. But Yeah, and, and it's also been shown that for some chemicals can be transferred to um, organisms. But there's also some modeling results which um, suggests that if an organism is really polluted and you introduce a very clean particle to this organism, mm -hmm. then it may actually clean the um, organism because then the pollutants will adhere to the um, microplastic. Oh, wow. <laughs> And then if the particle is, uh, is ingested, then, yeah, it may actually lose this pollutant. But, yeah, that's a modeling wow. result. So, yeah. Very interesting. So, so I wonder pollutant. if there's plastic, like if I'm eating microplastic in, say, my fish for dinner or something, and then maybe there's toxins in my stomach from some other things, and then maybe they would attach to the microplastic, and then I would, like, get it out of my body? Maybe? Yeah, but, I mean, this is quite uh, theoretic. Yeah. <laughs> so. I, I would not uh, consider this a good way of uh, cleaning your body. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because we don't know how, what what else it does to our body as well. So yeah, maybe one day um, this will become um, our way of cleaning ourselves. <laughs> no, so I mean, far, we know too little about it. Yeah. Wow, that's very interesting and fascinating. So, Melanie, how did you become a scientist? Like, were you always interested in science as a little girl? 
Actually, um, I, I just remembered uh, the other day when, when I was a girl, I was one of the things that I used to do on my holidays by the seaside. I would always um, look at the uh, shells and things on the beach, but I also collected bits of glass because they were so nice and round and um, colorful. And, and I also collected <laughs> plastic pallets. It dawned on me, even in, in, in those days, oh. they were around. Yeah. So, yeah, this kind of, this is when my love for the marine realm kind of um, started. And, yeah, then I started to study biology and did a diving course. And then it was clear to me that I wanted to become a marine biologist. That's very cool. And uh, what got you into sustainability? Like, do you do things in your life to be sustainable? I know Germany seems to be ahead of the curve when it comes to sustainability. That's what we like to think of ourselves. Unfortunately, um, a lot less plastic is actually recycled than most people would think in Germany. Some German news magazine even estimated a number as low as around 6%. Wow. <laughs> so a lot of it is actually uh, burned and not uh, recycled. So what do I do? Well, I try and buy... Uh, my food on on a market or in a what we call um, non-packaged shop. I don't know what the English term for that is. Yeah. Um, basically, where you can buy everything um, without plastic. That's awesome. Um, but this, of course, is just a small box solution. It's not um, apl applicable to everyone. So what we really need is that uh, supermarkets sell stuff which is a lot less packaged. Yeah. We need to really, at the structural and um, political level, uh, make changes to reduce plastic uh, production globally. Because if we continue to produce as much plastic every year or in, in follow this increasing trend, uh, which we've seen over the past few years, then we will use up between 10 and 13 percent of the remaining um, CO2 budget left until 2050. And so this is also an issue, the, the carbon footprint uh, from producing the plastic and burning it in the end, this whole cycle. And um, another thing that is uh, often not mentioned um, is the amount of toxins generated by the incineration of plastic, because often incineration is, uh, po is uh, portrayed as something good, mm -hmm. because um, we can uh, generate heat from it, for instance, or energy. A lot of toxins are set free through the process, and in, in I don't know the Western countries, uh, I guess most of it will be will end up in filters. But I've seen a film where they showed where this stuff is then transported, and there was just one um, in Germany. They use um, what do you call it? Where they used to extract salt. No, I'm not so sure. So this is empty now. So then now they put the pollutants there. So 900 tons per day in, into that. Uh, salt. How do you, what do you call it? I'm not sure. Like a mine? A mine? Yeah, maybe. salt mine. Yeah, yeah that's the thing. Uh, a, a form of salt mine. So yeah, we're producing all these pollutants and leave them to the future generation too. So yeah, this is not really an option, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I, I see it as a geological layer. Like everywhere I go, I see garbage. And I, I, I can just see, you know, in, in thousands of years or 10,000 years, you know, there, I think we're going to have, I mean, maybe it'll be bright and colorful. Uh, but 
I think that there will be a layer that's kind of permanently written into the earth. And I, uh, I worry about it <laughs> from many different angles. Um, yeah. Yeah. But well, thank you, Melanie, so much. This has been really cool. And I've learned so much. I think our, our listeners will be, um, I don't know if I'd say happy to learn that there's, there's, yeah. there's plastic in the Arctic, but it's so important that we know this stuff. And it gives us ammunition to, to go forward and try and reduce plastic. So thank you very much. Yeah, you're welcome. That was Melanie Bergman, scientist from Germany. Did you know you can now find our episodes on YouTube? If you have a YouTube account, please like, subscribe, and comment on there. And if you haven't given us a review on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts, please do so. It helps the algorithms push our show up in search results, which means more people will discover the show and more zero-waste solutions will be shared around the world from our amazing guests that we've had on the show. I'm a volunteer at my local college radio station, and I don't make very much money, so if you have a few bucks to spare each month, you can sign up and be a patron on Podbean. There's a little reward button you can click on there. I'm also on Patreon, but I want to keep all my content free for everyone instead of putting it behind a paywall, so... You also can donate directly on the show's website, zerowastecountdown.com. We are a registered nonprofit in Canada called the Zero Waste Countdown Initiative. Thanks for listening, everybody, and thanks to our listeners in America, Canada, Germany, the UK, Australia, New Zealand, Spain, and wherever else you're tuning in from. Together, we're going to change the world. Change starts now. This is the Zero Waste Countdown Podcast.